Does God like it? Here's the opening question. Does God like it when we sing Christian hymns? Especially when it's during the Christmas season. Does that please Him? You see up there going, finally, they're singing my song. Does God like it when we display a nativity scene in our house or have one lit up in our front yard? Does, does that please Him? Does God like it when I go to church to show that I am duty-bound? See, God, I am a duty-bound believer. Or is God more pleased when I go out of delight? So if I'm not in a good mood, I should just stay home because at least I'm being authentic. Is that what God wants? Some people believe that delight is all about authenticity. And if I'm in a bad mood, I'm just not going to come and put it on a fake smile like everybody else. Is that pleasing to God when I stay home because at least I'm authentic? Is God happy when I wear like a bow tie or another tie or I iron my shirt or polish my shoes when I go to church? Does that make God happy? I know my mom and grandma are, but I want to know, is God happy about that? What are the specific things I need to do to make God happy? What are those things? Wouldn't it be nice to actually know what pleases God? Because sometimes it's hard to please our parents, especially when they're grumpy during this time of year. It's hard to please teachers these day and age because because a lot of times our grades or our children's grades depends upon their advancement. It's hard to please a wife. It's hard to please a husband. And the hardest of all is to please the pastor. It's hard to please the pastor. So is there anything in the Bible that tells us what pleases God? Yes, there's a verse. Here's the verse. And I'm going to put the blank. It says, without blank, it is possible to please God. Fill in the blank. What is the answer? Faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's Hebrews 11.6. That's what we all need to understand. If we are to please God, we need to live by faith. In our new studies in Genesis, we are going through the book of Genesis. Next week it will be more of a Christmas message that's still using Abraham's life. But today we are going to begin with the father of faith. The father of the faithful, Abraham. We're going to be learning a lot about what it means to walk with God by faith through his life. So beginning here in Genesis eleven twenty-seven, this new series of the life of Abraham is going to begin. It's going to be called Living a Life of Faith. Today is part one. And part one is simple. To live a life of faith, to let go of the past starting in chapter 11, verse 27. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. 
Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Before, um, before we really tackle the specific message, what's really interesting, before you get to chapter 12, the first 11 chapters, whether you don't really realize it, they were written in hyperspeed. For the first 11 chapters, we covered over 2,000 years of history. 2,000 years. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The focus in the first seven chapters was the movements of God's work. And the best way to look at Genesis, it's a story that God is telling in four major parts. I want to show you the four major parts of Genesis. And those four major parts are one narrative of redemption, redeeming his people, which is really the message of Scripture. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, deliverance, saving people. Part 1, which we've already covered, chapters 1 through 11, we find God is setting the stage, kind of like he's setting the whole backstage for the rest of the whole Bible. The major events happen. In this 2,000 years of history, we go from creation, where he created everything, even man, to the fall, we talked about that, to the flood, and to the spread or the dispersion of the nations. The overall message in part 1 is that God is a God to be feared. He is a very powerful God. And we've learned it all through Genesis 1 through 11. Part 2 is chapters 12 through 23. We're going to find God calling out to a single man named Abram to learn how to walk by faith. This story is meant to show us how to have a relationship. He is going to take his time. Actually, we're going to have as many chapters on Abraham alone than that we had in the first chapter, 11 chapters of Genesis. From this point on, what's really interesting, from the end of chapter 11 on, we, it takes another 2,000 years to get to the end of the Old Testament. So you could say chronologically at the end of chapter 11, we are at the midway point in the Old Testament kind of crazy. Part three, which we're going to not spend a whole lot of time talking about, 24 to 36, we're going to talk about Jacob and this guy who wrestled with God. He became Israel. And so it's really about wrestling with God with your flesh. He was a man of deceit. A lot of crazy stuff happens in part three. And in part four, we're going to learn about this guy named Joseph. Joseph is the one who is sent to be the redeemer because God has favor. He loves his people. So these are the four parts of Genesis. They tell a story of redemption. We're on part two, faith in God. And I think it's the most important part. Because it's impossible to please God without faith. So that's what we are going to do. Is how to live a life of faith. So to begin, we see here, at the end of chapter 11, 
And then the beginning of chapter 12, we've got this account. He goes to the genealogy and he gets to Terah. And Terah has three sons. And out of those three sons, God chooses Abram. And before we go any farther, why did he choose Abram? We have to ask that. Why would he choose this guy Abraham to be the father of faith? What was it about Abram that compelled the heart of God to call him? Because what it was about him, if we're going to live a life of faith, we should hopefully have the same attributes of Abram. What, why did he call him? So we could go to the next slide, and the question is why. Oh, go back a second. Sorry about that. This is why we're following Abram. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. If you want to be blessed, you need faith. So let's go to the next slide. Why Abram? Why did God choose Abram? Was he just better than other men? Was he smarter? Was he morally superior? Was he richer? Did he stand a foot taller? What was it that caused God to want him? Because I think we believe you need to be somehow better for God to want you. There are four specific things the scriptures tell us about Abram before he's called. Number one, he's old. He's old. Look at verse 4 of chapter 12. So Abram left. He left Haran, actually he left Ur with his family. His dad died in Haran, and he left Haran to go to Canaan. But look at what it says about him. He was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So he's old. Old guy. That's 10 years past the retirement years in the U.S. when people quit working and they go on their back porch and watch the cardinal and squirrel eat from their bird feeder. Actually, 75 is the prime snowbird age. Get that mobile home down there in Florida and, you know, go wake up at 10, have your grapefruit juice, go golfing, and then uh, play bingo at 7 o'clock at night, and then watch hours of gun smoke at night as you fall asleep on your lounger. That's what happens at 75. But God's just beginning with Abram at 75. The average American life expectancy is 78.6 years. That only gives Abraham really three good years left. Three good years left, but I wouldn't say they're good. He probably had old bones, rotted teeth, and a bald head. That's not good years. Why would you call Abram? It reminds me of I was watching uh, the Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge, and the, the spirits come back and said, you can change. He goes, I'm too old to change. I can't change. Abram was too old, man. Some of you might say, well, no, no, no. No, 75 years, he's still a young buck according to the Old Testament, you know. Well, this is after the flood when the body started really falling apart quicker. So he was definitely an old man. So what's the lesson in this? You're never too old to start a life of faith with God. You're never too old to start walking with God. Never give up on God because he can breathe new life into anybody, even you. Even you. Second thing we can say about Abram, it's interesting, he was a pagan. He was a pagan. Joshua 24.2, you can check it out. It says, Abram and his family came from a land where they worshipped other small g gods. Ur, the Chaldeans, they worshipped the stars, they worshipped the moon. The moon god was their top god. And they would chart the stars, kind of like astrologers, to figure out omens. They were superstitious. 
So you could say Abraham was ignorant, he was superstitious, and that's when God called them. There is some question, how much did he know about his great-great-great-grandfather Noah and his walk with God? He probably knew about it, but did he know that God? Well, not in Ur. That's what Joshua says in 24.2. What's very fascinating is some scholars also believe at this same time, 100 miles away was another guy by the name of Job that lived in Uz. And Job knew God. So there was some people that knew God. But I think the lesson for this part is that I guess you're never too far away. You're never too far gone. You're never too ignorant not to be responsive to his call. Ah, oh, you don't know my past. You don't know the things I dabbled in. I used to know a Satanist that would uh, come over to my house and now he's a really strong believer in Christ. You're never too far away from God. Third thing we can say, and I found this in Isaiah 42, one is only one man. He was only one. Abraham was one man strong at the time of his calling. He wasn't a powerful nation. He was not a majority. He wasn't a movement of people. He's one guy. One guy started all. One guy is known for the father of faith. Can you be that one person in your family to start all over? Start all over. Change everything in your family. It can be you. Oh, no, no, no. Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. And then the fourth thing, he was homeless. So when you talk about the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the immigrant who has no home, no place to lay his head, Abraham was it. If you want to read something really chilling, it's Ezekiel chapter 16. It's very vulgar, actually, and it talked about what the Hebrew nation was like when God called him, and it uses a metaphor, and it says they were like a newborn baby tossed out in the field with its umbilical cord still attached in its own blood, and nobody wanted him. But God did. So Abraham was a helpless wanderer, homeless. So, based on these four things, why did God choose him? I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea. God does not choose the way we do. We look for people who have something to give back to us. We look for people that have qualities we admire. God looks for someone to bring him glory. I think personally the most, one of the most important New Testament verses is 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. It talks about, do you remember what you were like when you were called? Not many of you were great. Not many of you were wise. That means a lot to me. Because when I look in the mirror, I know who I am deep down. When I get up in the morning, and I know who I am. I see the same ugly man day after, day after day. I'm getting older, my teeth are yellowing, and I ponder the frailty of life. There's so many faded and unfulfilled dreams keep stacking up in my life. Or regrets, they just haunt you. Or do you ever just feel like you're just a failure? And they, those failures can condemn you. It's horrible. Why would God want to use me? I'm one man, I'm not a very good man at that. And I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Why in the world would he want me? But Abraham's story tells me it's exactly people like me that God calls. And that's an encouraging thought, is it not? 
So that's why I believe God called Abram, because he could use him to bring him glory. Can he use you? Well, I got nothing to offer. Perfect. Perfect. You don't know how I messed up my life. Perfect. Yeah, but I'm old. Are you 75 yet? So when God comes a calling, and this is the first part, I tell you what, God's not subtle when he comes calling. We like to say God's a gentleman, but you know, when God comes calling, he's not necessarily gentle. And I think we need to understand this a second. When God comes calling you, he comes to take over. We often like to picture God as we do decorations at Christmas. We add them to our house, but they really don't change anything in a house. They just make it more cheerful and more bright. So we sell Christianity like that. You ask Jesus into your life, you'll have joy and peace and comfort. and You know, like a brand new light, but the fixture, all the fixtures are the same, but man, he just adds light. Now let's take a look at Genesis 12, 1 a second. I mean, take a real look at it. I, I think sometimes when we read scripture, it's, it just becomes kind of normal instead of shocking as it really was the first time it was heard. Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So really the first thing that Abraham heard is leave. Leave. Faith leaves. Leaves before it does anything else. So the next slide, Declan, is faith leaves. This is an incredible word. This is not a Christmas decoration word. This is a demolition word. Don't just decorate your house with nice thoughts of me, God says, but demolish it for me. What? The word here for leave can be equated with the idea of letting go, not holding on to, not holding tight, and it's letting go to what was or finding your identity and who you used to be. Give it up. Let it go, God's saying. Stop finding your identity and what you used to find it in. Let go. You Quit holding tight to it. Maybe you might think, oh, that's not hard until you read what he asks you to give up. Listen to what he asks Abram to give up. And if you heard this, how receptive would you be? We don't really, as pastors, don't ask this stuff because we're nice guys. If God was a pastor, I'm not sure many people would come to his church. Here's the first thing he says. Abram, and I hear my name, Chris, hey, leave your country. That's what he says right there. Leave your country. Leave your country. Leave my country. What does that mean? The nation you came from, the place you were born, the familiar sights and smells, the cozy neighborhood you grew up in. You know, don't identify with that anymore. And this is not easy. People take a lot of pride in their heritage. I'm 100% American. By golly, 100%. We're the greatest country on the face of this earth. I'm telling you. Those rotten people from other countries. Why do we let them? Ah, oh, I'm 100% American. Let it go, man. Can't tell you how many times even living here I've heard people say, oh, this is the greatest place to grow up, Apple country. I'm never going to leave here. It's the greatest place ever. Abram, Chris, uh, don't just leave your nation, but leave your people. 
wait a minute, God is starting to go a little deeper and he's getting a little too interfering here. So I need to keep using this. Every time I turn, Jared, it clicks off. Something wrong with it? All right. It's my fault. All right, robot. Did you ever watch Shields in Yarnell in the 70s? I used to practice that. Anyhow, I'll see what I can do. Leave your people. God is now starting to say, all right, all right. Okay, nation, but people, it's more, it's getting closer in to really what matters. People represents to us many different things. Could be your race. Could be your religion. Denomination could be your community. And it's crazy because that's all American politics are these days, are identity politics. What group I identify with, and I am going to demand we get our rights. We want to be known by our culture. Am I white? Am I black? Am I Mexican? Asian? Am I redneck? What am I? And it matters. I'm going to fight it. I, I, was, uh, I heard the funniest thing. I watched this video on Conan O'Brien the other day. It was hilarious. And he's talking to some comedian, I forget who it was, and this comedian says, you know, we have to be very sensitive about the races and talking about different got to be very sensitive. But you know, there are some that slip through that we get away with. We should be ashamed of ourselves. And Conan's like, what? And he goes, the Italians. We go to an Italian restaurant, give me a pizza pie. Oh, I'm a Mario. He goes, why don't we get mad at people when they say I'm a Mario playing a video game? That's offensive. And Conan says, I know how you feel, I'm Irish. And everybody comes up and he goes, hoity, toity, toity, going to drink again. You know? It's very offensive. Anyhow, we're very offensive these days. We've got to protect our people. People are defensive of the religious denominations. I was raised a Polish-German Catholic. The title to many of my relatives is far more important than the actual belief behind those words. I'm going to be a Catholic, I'm going to die a Catholic. Do you know what it means? I have no idea, but I'm going to live a Catholic diacat. Do you know what transubstantiation is? Uh, no, that's kind of a weird word. Well, you believe that every Sunday morning. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Oh, I'm a Catholic and a diacat. What does that mean? God wants you. He doesn't want your religion. It's ridiculous. I'm a Baptist. What does that mean? What's that? We don't clap or dance. We, yeah, we didn't clap too well today. When is church? Ah, hands in pocket. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you have, uh, like to meet people also as community. We like to identify with a certain community. Like a, maybe the school community. A lot of people invest their whole life in the local school community. It's who they are. Or the gay community, LGBT community, the NRA community, it's who I am, man, I got a sticker. The swing dancing community is a big one these days. There's a really bad one, it's called the Wolverine community, we need to get rid of that. The, uh, the, there's a thing called the Brony community. There's an essential oil community, kind of strange. Amway community, or the local pub community. Where everybody knows your name, right? And nobody, they don't judge you there. Yeah, it's because you're all drunk. That's why. <laughs> what does uh, God tell Abram? Leave. Let it go. Quit identifying with that because you're mine now. Remember when I was in high school, there was definite communities of jock, bando, druggie, 
grunge or when I was going there as goth, you know. And I remember there were a couple people that were really Christians, and they seemed to kind of be able to morph into everyone without identifying. It's, we love our identities. Let it go. And then uh, Abraham, and this is really the tough one, says, look at the very end of 12. So, hey, Abe, leave your country. Leave your people. Hey, leave your dad's house. Leave your father's household. This to me is going too far. I'm done preaching. This is too far. Leave your, fa- leave your house? Leave your immediate family? Leave your close friends? You mean that God will sometimes ask you to disagree with, disassociate with, or even disown your own family? Come on. That's too harsh. God would not ask that. But you know what? You know, I, you know what's going on here? This is the Old Testament. I've often heard that God is meaner in the Old Testament. And Jesus is a lot nicer. He would never say this. But would he? Listen to this verse. Listen, listen, to, this. listen to this verse. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Ouch. Ow, like Bob, Bob Wiley. Ow, ow, what? I thought God wanted to bring us together, be unified. I thought God wanted us to love our parents, bring us peace and joy. What's going on? God is asking Abraham and Jesus, is asking us to leave because we have a terrible tendency to be conformers. We conform. We conform. And you have to listen close. We melt like water into the fabric of our surroundings and we easily pick up habits, desires, and goals of the secular and godless world. And if our family's a part of that, it's even deeper ingrained in us. I used to uh, live in Chicago and I would take the train, take an hour train ride to go into work. And uh, it was about a I'd try to get the express because it'd be about 45 minutes. If you get on where they stop on every one, it takes about an hour and a half. And so I got on the express, but I was about a couple minutes late and it started going and there was a door that was just closing. I jumped into the door, but right before I jumped into the door, it said something over top the door, smoking coach. If you've ever been on a smoking coach, it's exactly what it says. Everybody in that coach is smoking. And it was an express train, so the doors closed, and I sat in the seat, and it was just I'm in a fog. Everybody's smoking cigars and cigarettes, and man, like it's horrible. If you don't like smoke, it's horrible. I got out of there, like a, a tobacco cloud followed me everywhere for the next five hours. Like it was in my, my jacket and my t-shirt and even in my socks. It was terrible. Took me, I had to dry clean my, my uh, suit two times because smoke gets in and it does not leave easy. So does the world. The world soaks in. And God is enmity with the world. He's an enemy with it. That is why conformity is so dangerous because if we don't notice it, but as we get closer to some people who are stuck in it, we pull away from God. It's dangerous. And there's three personal thoughts I have on danger. Here's why it's so dangerous. Number one, customs, how a culture thinks, 
what it aspires to become, or the habits it forms. Culture, more times than not, is flesh-formed. It's formed by the flesh. Here's phrases the flesh says. Do what feels right. Make a name for yourself. Pull your up by your own bootstraps. He who has the most toys wins. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Flesh, flesh, flesh. It's all flesh. And the Bible says flesh is an enemy with God. It's at war. And so if I'm a friend with the world, God runs from you. It's talking to a friend about a new popular singer. You might have heard her name. I really don't know her. her name is Lauren Daigle. But I know she's really popular. It says she signed a record label that wants to get her name out, so they booked her on the Ellen Show. Ellen asked her what she thought about homosexuality. Her, res- her response was a, just a quick sidestep. She said, I can't honestly answer that because I have too many friends that are homosexual. I'm not necessarily asking her to just pound on them, but you can't honestly, the Bible hasn't honestly answered that. That's what culture does to us. It, it uh, wants us to be friends with, and make people happy, to be kind. It's flesh. Second thing that's dangerous about conformity is that tribal superiority becomes the norm. Our nature is to fight for our own kind. Don't give your ground on any issue or you'll be run over. Fight for your brother. Claim the land and don't give an inch. When you conform, you join into what's called a mob mentality whether it be a political party, a majority, or I'm part of the minority group, whichever one, or a family name that owns the town. You know, I'm part of this family. I should start on the basketball team. We want to make sure we claim what is rightfully ours because that's our group. Do you know what Philippians says about Jesus? It's really fascinating. I'm going I'm to show it to you. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is in the New Testament. This is utterly, to me, this is, this is pretty mind-blowing. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5 and 6. Hey, Boyd, in my Bible I had it marked with a feather you gave me. Philippians 2, 5 and 6. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then here it is. Who being in the very nature of God, meaning that Jesus was God, very nature God. He's God, very God of very God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That means the height, the prominence of God who reigns on high, he let the title go, the position go. He didn't hold on to it. He could have. He's God. He let it go and he made himself nothing. That's incredible to me. So then you have the third reason I think conformity is dangerous, and this is one that slips by us really quickly. Traditions often look morally right when they are often subjectively formed. Conformity, especially in a church you grow up in, may be the most dangerous because people will make it seem like the traditions they have established are God's certain will. And they may not be. God never sanctioned 
a bow tie or a tie. Did you know that God never sanctioned a tie? I can't find one verse that says a tie pleases God. Not one. I tried. I tried. And to my joy, not one was there. Did you know that? I mean, honestly, did you know? Do you know there's not a verse that says in the month of December, sing Christmas songs? Not one. There really isn't. Not one. But by golly, we better sing them or God's going to be mad. Is God going to be mad? I'm going to be mad because I like singing them. Exactly. Then tell the truth. Don't look down on people for that. It's really odd. God never demanded you be a Baptist. But he did. He does ask you to believe this wholeheartedly. The reason I'm pastor of a Baptist church because I believe the doctrinal statement is, represents who I am. But I'm a Christian. I am a little Christ. I follow him. God wants you to think for yourself. He doesn't want you to think for your grandma. He wants you. And he wants you alone. He wants you. Faith begins with you separating the past so he can have you. My conclusion statement is very simple. And I believe this with everything, and I'm not sure everybody does. It is often impossible to embrace a new life when you're holding on so tightly to the past. I want to show you a verse. This is Psalm 45.10. I, I mention this a lot because this is probably my favorite psalm. It's a psalm about the king. And he goes through, Psalm 45 is a psalm that talks about Jesus in a messianic way. That means it's quoted in New Testament referring specifically to Christ. And it talks about him, in verse 1 it says, I'm telling you my heart is excited. Who? It says my heart is stirred by a noble theme. I get to recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Meaning I can't wait to tell and write this down. He's writing about the king. And he says you are the most excellent of men. You're incredible. And it, then it talks about verse 3. He's going to one day gird his sword upon his side and he's going to ride victoriously. He's going to conquer everything. Even verse 5, his sharp arrows are going to pierce his enemies. That's horrific. And then verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. It talks about his rule is going to be righteousness. He hates wickedness. And then he talks about his beauty in verse 8. He says, all your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from palaces adorned with ivory. And the idea is he, it's like a wedding and the, he's the groom coming out adorned, ready to get married. It's incredible. It says the music is playing. Strings that make him glad. And it says, then daughters of kings are among your honored women. So all these noble people are watching the king come forward getting ready for the marriage ceremony. And then it says this. Describes the bride in gold of Ophir. And then it talks to the bride specifically. And the church is the bride of the husband Christ. But it, here's verse 10. is the specific call to the church. Listen, it says, O daughter. Consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Why? Why would I do that? Because the king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he's your Lord. Here's the point. 
You cannot be married to Christ if you're still married to the world. Everybody knows that. You can't date your old girlfriend when you marry your wife anymore. You know that. There is a separation that I am to be a committed lover of Christ. It's the same idea. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When I become Christ's, I'm his. I'm his. Don't be pulled back to conform to the world anymore, but be renewed. So my question is, have you ever left? Have you ever left? Because you can't be married if you're still with your buds. 